Our scripture passage this morning comes from Romans 11, 1 through 10. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Thank you, Grace. Well, this morning, as Grace has just read, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Romans. And as we do, we come to Romans chapter 11. And I feel like whoever's preaching says this about almost every Sunday, no matter what passage in, in Romans we're preaching on, but... This morning we come to one of the most difficult and challenging chapters in the entire book of Romans. And you thought chapter 9 was hard, chapter 7 was hard, whatever. Um, this is, this is um, equally as difficult and challenging. But, but this is one of the beauties, right, of preaching consecutively through books of the Bible uh, like we do here. And it, it just causes us to deal with difficult truths, difficult doctrines, difficult topics that, that we wouldn't normally say, hey, let's preach on this, you know, this Sunday. Um, it also, it, it forces us just to be able to um, just, just deal with difficult questions and things that the Bible addresses that we just normally wouldn't, we normally wouldn't want to um, think would be um, naturally what we'd preach on on a Sunday morning. And, and that's definitely the case when we get to Romans 11 and in our chapter here this morning. And, and the reason I say that is because here's what this chapter, here's what this chapter and passage is really all about. It's all about one question. And the question is, has God rejected Israel? That's the question. And so I don't know about you, but for most of you that I've talked to this week, that's not the question you've been staying up late at night, tossing and turning in bed, wrestling with, right? Like y'all been wrestling about whether or not you should buy a dog. Or like how to get Johnny to sleep through the night. Or how in the world are you going to make it financially through the rest of the month? Or how are you going to, what are you going to do about this besetting sin in your life? And what, should you change jobs? And like you've been wrestling with all these, except for the dog question, these major questions, right, and issues. that, that are, Seriously, some of you, right, tossing and turning at night, can't sleep at night because just wrestling with this issue, with this question, what should I do this, should I do this, should I do, what do I do about this? And, and then the preacher stands up on Sunday morning and says, okay, the question we're going to wrestle with this morning is, has God rejected Israel? 
And so it's not the question you've been wrestling with, I don't think, this week. And because of that then, here's the temptation. The temptation is for you to think, oh, that's the question this morning. Well, that's irrelevant. That doesn't, that doesn't relate to my life. That doesn't relate to what I've been wrestling through and what's going on in my life. And so then I'll have my Bible out, but underneath my Bible I'll have my phone. Or I'll act like I'm reading my Bible on my phone and I'll be, I'll be you know, doing whatever you do on your phone. And so here, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want to do. I, I want to implore you not to do that. Instead, I want to show you why this question of has God rejected Israel is relevant for every single person in this room. And the reason it's relevant for every single person in this room is because Paul's answer to this question teaches us some really important truths about God. That Paul's answer to this question teaches us some really important things about who God is and what God is like. And since that's true then, this passage here this morning, this chapter here that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, this passage isn't fundamentally about Israel. This passage is fundamentally about God. And since it's fundamentally about God, then it's relevant for every single person in this room this morning, no matter who you are. But in saying that, I probably need to warn you. And the warning is this. The picture that this passage this morning is going to paint of God is not going to set well with many of you. Like we've already seen it in chapter 9. And some of you are rolling your eyes like, oh, golly, we're going back to Romans 9 again? And just remember this, like, I don't, I don't make the food, I just deliver it, okay? And so, yes, we're going back to Romans chapter 9 again. That the truths, the picture that we're going to see of God, we've already seen it. Paul's already told us. He's already given us these specific truths, you're going to hear them this morning. You're going to think, I think I've heard that before. Well, you have. Romans chapter 9. And he brings it up again. But here's my prayer and hope for us this morning. As we see these, these truths of God that, that are really hard to swallow and that aren't the pictures of God that most of us grew up with in Sunday school in those coloring books, this picture of God we're going to see is this majestic, grand, great, big, awesome of a God who has sovereign power and authority over everything. And my hope is that as we see this picture of God, that it would do two things. It would have two effects on our hearts and on our lives this morning. The first effect is, is I pray that it would cause us to trust him. To cause us to trust him. Because the things we're going to go through this morning, after we read through this, you're going to have all these reasons and all these questions and all these, all these even confusing thoughts and questions going through your mind that are going to cause you to potentially not trust him. 
but the whole purpose of this passage and these truths is to cause us to trust him. And as we trust him then, the effect it should have on us then is to worship him. So that, that's the effect, that's the end of this passage. Is that as we go through this, that it would cause us to trust him. And it would cause us to worship him. Even though what we see of him is, is hard to swallow. And so that, that's where we're headed during the rest of our time this morning. So let's, let's dig into this passage, verses 1 through 10, Romans chapter 11. Paul's asking and answering this question, has God rejected Israel? And he's going to answer this question in, in really two parts. And the first part of his answer is this, and you see this on your handout. His answer is, is no. That's the short answer. That God has not completely and totally rejected Israel. We see this right from the beginning, right from the get-go there in verse 1. Look there with me. Verse 1, Paul asks, he says, he asks this question. Now, I ask then, has God rejected his people? So then there it is, right? Straightforward, that's the question. And remember, going back to last week in chapter 10, what, what was it that prompted Paul to ask this question in verse 1 here in chapter 11? If you remember at the, the end of chapter 10, there were really all of chapter 10, you remember from last week, the majority of Israel hasn't believed. So they've rejected Jesus. Remember, they, God, God sent them a, a preacher. Preachers had, had preached the, the gospel message. They had heard the gospel message. But they broke the chain of events there that should have led to them calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. And the way they broke the chain of events is they didn't believe. They didn't trust they didn't trust the, the message of salvation that they had received. And because of that, then, they're responsible for it. And Paul, remember, at the end of chapter 10, he's holding them responsible. He's saying, it's your fault. You're responsible that you haven't believed. And then, when we get to chapter 11, then, Paul wants to know, then, in light of Israel's rejection of, of Jesus and the gospel message, Paul wants to know, he raises the question then, does that then mean that God has completely and totally and entirely then rejected Israel? In other words, is he finished with them? Is he wiping his hands clean and moving on? Well, look at the answer that Paul gives in the middle of verse 1. He says, by no means. Now, he's emphatic here. He says, certainly not, absolutely not. In other words, God has not completely, totally, entirely rejected Israel. Then what he does in, in the rest of verse 1 and, and down through verse 6, he proves it. He offers two proofs that prove, that demonstrate that God hasn't entirely, totally, completely rejected his people Israel. And we see the first proof that he gives in the rest of verse 1 there. Look, look there with me. Paul says this. He says, for, meaning, meaning for, here, here's how I know that God hasn't completely and totally rejected Israel. For, it's because I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, do you, do you see Paul's logic, the, the, the argument, the train of thought there? He's saying, the reason I know that God hasn't completely and totally and entirely rejected Israel 
is because of me? Paul's saying, I'm the proof. Like, I'm the proof that God isn't done with Israel. I'm the proof that God isn't completely and rejected Israel. Because, like, I'm a Jew. And I'm a Christian. And God hasn't rejected me. And that, that's, that's Paul's whole point there and why he mentions that he's an Israelite and a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He lists all those credentials. He like whips out his birth certificate here in order to prove that he's a real, 100% true, bona fide Jew. And since he's a real, 100% true, real, bona fide Jew, then he's the proof that God hasn't completely and entirely and totally rejected Israel because God hasn't rejected him. So that's the first proof that he offers. In verse 2 then, he offers a second proof to prove that God hasn't completely and totally and entirely rejected Israel. And the second proof is this. You can see it on your hand out there. It's that a remnant of believing Israelites exist. A remnant of believing Israelites exist. And just follow the logic there. So then, if a, belie- if a remnant of believing Israelites exist, then that proves that God hasn't totally and completely and entirely rejected Israel. So that's what he goes on to say there in verse 2. Look there with me. Once again, states, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. We'll talk about that word foreknew here in just a minute, but it's the same word that Paul mentions back in chapter 8, verse 29. But in the rest of verse 2 then through verse 4, What Paul's going to do is he's going to give an example, a historical example from the Old Testament of a time in which God didn't completely and totally reject his people, but instead of rejecting them, he preserved a small faithful remnant. And the example that he's going to give to to demonstrate this point is an example from the Old Testament prophet Elijah uh, from 1 Kings chapter 18 and 1 Kings chapter 19. And we don't have time to turn there and go through all the details there. Some of y'all might know on, on Mount Carmel there and Prophet Abel and, and Prophet Elijah and, and all the details there. We don't have time to go into all that. But the short version of, of what happened there is, is and that Paul's emphasizing here is what happened at the end of that. That what happened at the end of that was basically that, that King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, sent Elijah a message saying that she was going to have him killed. And so Elijah, if you remember, kind of wigs out. When he hears, and you would, you would understand why, right? When he hears that, that somebody's out to kill him, he gets scared, and he takes off running. And he runs into the wilderness, and he falls down under a tree. And this is where Paul picks up then in, in verse 2, right? Elijah's running for his life, scared out of his mind. He's got a bounty on his head. People are trying to kill him. He falls under a tree. And Paul picks up here in verse 2 of Romans 11. Paul asks this. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. And so he's under the tree, scared out of his mind, hiding out. And that's what he does. He appeals to God. And here's what he says. Look at the rest of verse 2. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and now they seek my life. In other words, do you see what Elijah is saying? He's saying, there's no one left, Lord. 
No one else is faithful. Those who sought to be faithful, they're dead. And everybody else has been unfaithful because they've bowed their knee to Baal. I'm the only faithful one left. I'm, I'm the only one in Israel that hasn't bowed their knee to Baal and that hasn't gotten slaughtered yet. I'm the only one left. Then look at how God replies to Elijah there in verse 4. Paul asks, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So then do you see what Paul's saying there? He's telling Elijah, Elijah, you're not the only one left. Like there's 7,000 others just like you. There are 7,000 others who've remained faithful, who haven't bowed their knee to Baal, and who are worshiping me, and so you're not the only one. In verse 5 then, what Paul does is he takes this example of Elijah and he applies it to the current day situation of the Israelites in Paul's day. And look at how he applies Elijah's situation to the Israelites in Paul's day. Look at it in verse 5. Paul says, so too, meaning just like in Elijah's day, at the present time, there is a remnant in other words, just like God preserved a faithful remnant of believing Israelites in Elijah's day, when the majority of them were, were unfaithful and the majority of them bowed their knee to Baal, so also God has done the same exact thing with Israel in Paul's day. That, that in chapter 10, right, we, we saw that the majority of them, this going back to last week, the majority of, of Israel, they, they, they didn't believe they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. They rejected him, and as a result, they were rejected by God. But that doesn't mean that God has totally and entirely and completely rejected Israel. Instead, he's preserved a faithful remnant, just like he did in Elijah's day. And this faithful remnant, then, is proof. It's a demonstration that proves that God hasn't completely and entirely and rejected Israel. His people, Israel. That, that was true of Israel in Paul's day, and it will continue to be true until the day that Jesus returns. That God will always underline it, capital letters, exclamation point, God will always have a remnant. A remnant of believing Jews, like we see here, and also a remnant of believing Gentiles, not two separate groups, but, but both of those groups making up the same remnant. Which then leads to this question. How? How can we be so sure of that? Like there's a lot of whacked out stuff going on right now, right? Yes. And so how, how can we be sure that in the midst of all this crazy mess that is happening all around us, and not just all around us like the culture, but also just the church at large. How in the midst of all that can we be sure and certain that God will always have a remnant? Not only of Jewish believers, but also of Gentile believers as well. Well, here's why we can be so sure of that. Here's why we can be so confident that there will always be 
a remnant. It's because of what Paul says there at the very end of verse 5. Look there with me. You notice what Paul said here? It says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by God. So do you see what Paul's saying here? Paul's explaining here how this remnant came about. Paul's explaining here how this remnant was brought into existence. He's explaining the root, the origin, the source of this remnant. And what he's saying here is that this remnant didn't come about, of believing Jews didn't come about just, just on their own. They, did, they, didn't, they didn't just, by sheer willpower, become part of this remnant. Or they, they didn't come about, this remnant didn't come about because one day they just decided to be a part of it. And they just chose to be a part of it. Instead, this remnant came about, this is really important, this remnant came about because God chose them to be part of it. In other words, God chose to save them and make them part of a believing remnant. And that's what the word chosen here is a reference to. It's a reference to everything that we just saw earlier in chapter 9. That before any of us had been born, and so then before any of us had done anything good or anything bad, before any of us had ever believed in Christ or rejected Christ, before any of that, before the foundations of the earth were laid, Ephesians chapter 1, before any of that, God sovereignly and freely chose specific individuals, and in this case, specific Jews, to be saved to be part of his chosen remnant. And this is important to catch here. The reason that, that, that's, that, that, that he did that, and the reason it's important to catch that, that this remnant came about because of God's free, sovereign choice, is because when many people read Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11 here, what they want to say is that what Paul's referring to here in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11, this whole talk of election and God's choosing here, they want to say that what, God, that what Paul's talking about is corporate election. They want to say that what Paul is talking about here is that God chose Israel as a whole. That God chose Israel corporately to be his special covenant people. But he doesn't choose specific individuals to be saved to be part of this remnant. The, the problem with that line of thinking is that that's not Paul's point here. Like his point isn't that God chose Israel corporately. His point here is that God chose a remnant out of corporate Israel to be saved. That God chose specific individuals out of corporate Israel as a whole to save and to be part of this chosen remnant. It's not corporate election. It's particular, specific, individual election of Israelites to be saved and to be included in his chosen 
remnant. Which is also true of Gentiles, but that's not the point that Paul's trying to focus in here in chapter 11 at this specific point in time. But do you see why this matters? Like practically speaking, there's a lot of reasons it matters. But do you see just practically speaking why this, why this matters? We can be sure, because of God's sovereign election, we can be sure, we can be guaranteed that a remnant will always exist. That the reason we can be sure that a remnant will always exist is because God will see that it will always exist. And the, reason, and the way that he has shown and, and made sure that it will always exist is because he chose it before the foundation of the world. And because he chose it before the foundation of the world, it's going to happen. It will always be there. It's not dependent upon depraved, sinful, wicked man to somehow make sure there's still always a remnant. God in his free sovereign election has made sure before the foundation of time that there will always be a remnant. And he's done it through his, through his sovereign election. And that truth, I'm telling you, is huge to remember in the midst of all the craziness going on in our country today. Like there's a lot of craziness going on. A lot of whacked out things going on. But here's, and the reality is things are only going to get worse. But the reality is no matter how bad things get, the church of Jesus Christ isn't in jeopardy. The church isn't going to fail. The church isn't going to die. Like Christ is going to build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail over it. And the reason we can be sure of that and know that is because he sovereignly chose it before the foundation of time and therefore a remnant will always exist. So don't get all whacked out and crazed out when you see all that's going on. The church will be fine. Are there things the church needs to address? Are there sin issues that are going on? Yes, 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 all that. But as a whole, we don't need to fret and wring our hands wondering, oh, what, what, what's this ultimately going to mean for the church? God will see to it and has seen to it through a sovereign election that a remnant will will exist. We're not told how many, but there is, there is a remnant. But in verse 5 there, if you noticed, Paul doesn't just say that this remnant has been chosen by, by God, and, and that's it. Instead, he tells us how this remnant was chosen. Did you notice that in verse 5? He says that this remnant was chosen by grace. This word grace is, is super important here. And the reason it's super important here is, is because it tells us that God's choice of the individual Jews, and then also Gentiles, but that's other places in Scripture, that he chose to be part of this remnant, did nothing to deserve it. They didn't do anything to deserve it. They did nothing to deserve God to choose them. In other words... Follow with me. There weren't any conditions they first had to meet before God chose them. 
They didn't have to first exercise faith and believe before God chose them. They didn't have to first get baptized before God chose them. They didn't have to first join a church before God chose them. They didn't have to first turn over a new leaf and get their act together before God chose them. Instead, God's choice of the individuals who would make up this remnant was 100% completely unconditional. It was all grace. It was all grace. And this, this is huge here. Like if you're a Christian here this morning, then there is absolutely nothing you did that caused God to choose you. He didn't look at you and think, oh man, I bet they'd be a good Christian. Let, let's, get them on, let's get them on our team. No. He, he didn't say, oh, when they're 15 at youth camp, they're going to choose me, so I'll choose them. No. Instead, if you're a Christian here this morning, then God's choice of you was completely and totally unconditional. There weren't any conditions you had to meet before God chose you. If it was unconditional, if it was conditional, it wouldn't be of grace. You'd deserve it for some reason because of some condition you met. But his choice is unconditional. And because it's unconditional, that's why it's, that's why it's by grace. And that, that's the point Paul hammers home there. And that Paul tries to make there in the very next verse, in verse 6. Look there with me. He says, but if it, meaning God's choice of us, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So again, do you see the significance of what he's saying there? He's saying that if we contribute anything at all to our salvation, if there are any conditions we have to meet before God chooses us, then God's election, God's choice of us would no longer be by grace. In other words, for our salvation and God's election and God's choice of us to be by grace, then it must be 100% completely and totally unconditional. Because the moment it's conditioned on anything, it's the moment it ceases to be by grace. That makes sense. So that's the first part of Paul's answer here to the question of whether or not God has rejected Israel. His answer is absolutely not, by no means. And the ultimate proof that God hasn't completely and totally rejected Israel is because God has a remnant. And the reason that God has a remnant is because he's chosen it by which then leads to this question. Okay, if that's the case and how this remnant came about, then what about the rest of Israel? What, what are we to make of them? Like if God chose by his sovereign grace to save only a remnant, a small number of Israelites then what about everybody else? What happened to them? 
Well, that's the second part of Paul's answer that we see next. That when it comes to the rest of Israel, secondly, and you see this on your handout here, the second part of Paul's answer to this question of how God has completely and totally rejected Israel. Second part of his answer is this. God has hardened the Israelites that weren't chosen to be part of his remnant. That God has hardened those Israelites that weren't chosen to be part of his remnant. Again, I told you, right, I warned you. You can't be mad. You can't say I didn't warn you ahead of time that this can be hard to swallow. But this is what Paul says in verse 7 through 10 there. Look, look there with me. Paul says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What he's talking about there is salvation or a righteous verdict from God, justification. Israel failed to obtain it, what it was seeking. That's what it was seeking, going back to chapter, into chapter 9. It failed to obtain it. The elect, though, obtained it. I mean, those that God had chosen to be part of the remnant, they were saved. They obtained a righteous verdict from God. They obtained salvation. But the rest, meaning the rest of Israel who weren't chosen and saved to be part of the remnant, the rest were hardened. Then what Paul does in, in the rest of verse really 8 through 10 is he quotes from three different sections of the Old Testament to prove how, 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 how God in the past had hardened Israel. To show that just how God had hardened Israel in the past, so he's doing the same thing in the present. And so if you look there at verse 8, he, he quotes specifically from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4. And then he combines that with Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10. And he says this in verse 8. He says, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Then in verses 9 and 10, he quotes from Psalm chapter 69, verse 22 and 23. And he says there in verse 9, he says, And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So do you see Paul's reason for why he quotes from all these different passages of Scripture? He, he quotes from them to show that this is what God is doing to Israel now. He's hardening them. He's putting a veil over their eyes. He's putting a veil over their heart so they can't see, so they can't understand the beauty and the glory of Jesus, that he's the Messiah, so they can't see, so they can't understand the glory and the beauty of the gospel and how they can have a righteous verdict from God, not based on works of the law, but based on faith. They can't see it. They can't understand it. And the reason they can't see it and the reason they can't understand it is because God has hardened it, hardened their hearts so they can't see and so they can't understand. That is hard to swallow. But it's important to remember, right, who God is doing this to. He's not doing this to just a bunch of morally neutral people. They haven't done anything bad. They haven't done anything good. They're just kind of morally neutral people in this gray area. Those people don't exist. No one is morally neutral. Instead, every single last one of us are born wicked, evil, 
depraved, children of wrath. And that's who God has hardened here. He hadn't hardened just a bunch of morally neutral people. He, hadn't hard, he didn't harden a bunch of good people. He hardened a bunch of unbelieving, wicked, depraved people. As an act of judgment against, against them. So I know, like, that, that's hard. And that's not the picture of God that we've grown up with in coloring, our, coloring books in, in Sunday school class. But at the same time, like, what else are you going to do with those verses? This is the God you were singing about earlier when you're singing, It is well with your soul. It's, it's Him. And so I know, like, we come here and all sorts of questions begin to come in our minds. And I wanted to begin to, like, begin to address all of them. But we don't have time. But one question that comes to people's mind when they, when they hear things like this is, I thought God desired that everyone would be saved. 2 Peter 3.9, 1 Timothy 2.3. I, di I didn't think God desired that anyone would perish. I thought God desired for everyone to be saved. And so I can't reconcile if God desires that no one perish, and if God desires that everyone be saved, then why in the world is he hardening people so they, they aren't saved? Boom, right? That's a great question. And there's a whole lot of answers to that question, and there's a whole lot of mystery to that question. But... And Paul's going to answer that question even more fully in the rest of Romans 11. So I'm going to kind of leave you on a cliffhanger so you'll come back next week, right? At the same time, here, here's something that I think is important to remember when it comes to this question. It, it's to understand this whole idea of God's will in a couple different ways. And you see this on your hand out there. First, one way to think about it is, is there's God's will of decree. God's will of decree. And so God's will of decree is, is a reference to, to that which God ordains or that which God decrees to happen in this world. And so you get a job. God ordained and decreed that for it to happen. It snowed Friday or whenever that was. God decreed, ordained that that would, that would happen. The, the mom and dad you had Growing up, God ordained that to happen. It's all the events in the world that God ordains and decrees to happen, which, if you, which is like everything. At the same time, there's God's will of desire. God's will of desire. And so then this is what God desires. This is what pleases him. This is what brings him delight. And so then this is, a, this is what... What verses like 2 Peter 3.9 and 1 Timothy 2.3 are talking about, it's this God's will of desire. When, it, when it's talking about God wants all men to be saved. God, God doesn't want anyone to perish. 
Those are examples of God's will of desire. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all men to be saved. People perishing doesn't bring God delight. Exodus, he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. That doesn't please him. It doesn't bring him delight. But as we've seen this morning, though, even though it doesn't bring him delight, even though some things don't bring him delight, he'll still decree it. He'll still ordain it. By hardening some and sovereignly choosing others to be saved. Which then begs this question, why? Again, we're, Paul's going to answer a lot of that in the rest of chapter 11. But, but here's the answer we're going to have to be okay with at this point. Through verse 10. And the answer is this. If God decrees something that doesn't bring him delight, that he doesn't desire, then he must have a really good reason to do so. Right? That, that he must have a greater plan. He must have a greater purpose, a greater goal in mind than just doing that which brings him delight and that he desires. And so he decrees it because there's a greater end, a greater goal, a greater purpose that he has in mind. And you want to know an example of that? The cross. The cross. God didn't take pleasure in. He didn't find delight in. He didn't have a big smile on his face when he's pouring out his wrath on his son. So then why did he decree it? Why did he ordain it then? He decreed it, he ordained it because he had a greater purpose, he had a greater plan, he had a greater goal, a greater end in mind. Namely, the satisfaction of his wrath and the salvation of the world. And the same is true that when it comes to God's decree in choosing some and hardening others. God does that. Why? Because he's all wise. He's all knowing. Or Josh's big words up here singing, omniscient, omnipresent, all the omnis. That's who God is. And he does this because he has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a greater end, a greater goal in mind that you and I, in our little puny little pea brains, can't wrap our minds around. And since that's true, guess what? We're just going to have to trust him. We just got to trust him. And this is really the first implication. You see this on your handout. First implication for everything that we've seen here this morning. The first implication when we read through all this about God choosing, God hardening, and trying, all the questions that, that come in our minds, the first implication that we need to take away, the first effect all this should have on our lives is, God, I don't understand all this. I don't, I don't get all this. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I don't understand this, Lord. Why, why don't you just choose everyone to be saved? I don't understand why you harden some. I don't understand why you don't always just decree what you desire. I can't wrap my mind around any of this stuff. But I believe you're wiser than I am. I believe you're a whole lot smarter than I am. 
Like you created the whole world and it's still functioning. You figured out a way to redeem and save sinful humanity. And so God, I don't understand it, but I believe you're accomplishing your plans and your purposes. Your thoughts, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are higher than my ways. So even though I have a lot of questions and I can't wrap my mind completely and totally around all these things, God, I trust you. That's the first effect this passage should have on our lives this morning. It shouldn't lead us to confusion. It shouldn't lead us to uncertainty. And it sure shouldn't lead us to anger with God. Instead, it should lead us to trust him. But that's not all. Secondly, and we're going to be done with this implication for the sake of time. I'm not going to get to that third one on your hand up there. It should not only lead us to trust him. The reality of all we've seen this morning should lead us, should, all this should lead us to worship him. Should lead us to worship him. And the reason I say that is because this is the effect that these truths had on the Apostle Paul in this chapter. That, that when Paul was confronted with the reality of God's sovereign election of a remnant, and when, when Paul was confronted with the reality of God's hardening of others, then the reality of, of those truths then didn't cause Paul to question God. It didn't cause Paul to doubt God. It didn't cause Paul to be confused, be confused about God. Instead, those truths caused Paul to worship God. And the reason I know that is because that's where this entire chapter is headed. Like this way, the entire chapter is ultimately headed. That in the rest of this chapter, Paul is going to repeat these themes over and over again. This whole idea of election, this whole idea of, of hardening. And he's going to repeat these truths over and over and over again. And he's going to show how God is sovereignly doing all this because he has a greater purpose, a greater goal, and a greater plan in mind. And so then after 32 verses of just rehearsing these truths over and over and over again about God's hardening, about God's election, about God's plan and purposes behind it all, Finally, when he gets to verse 33, do you know what Paul does? He burst out in praise. He burst out in song and worship of God for his unfathomable wisdom. Look at verse 33. He burst out and says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Like that right there is the effect that these truths of God, these pictures of God that we've seen this morning should have on our lives. That as we're confronted with the reality of God's wisdom in election, and as we're confronted with the reality of God's wisdom in hardening, and the reality of God's purpose and plan behind it all, which we're going to see next week, and, and our minds can even wrap ourselves, our minds can even, we can't even wrap our minds around any of that. We trust him. We don't debate with him. We don't question him. We don't be, we're not confused by him. 
Instead, we see how superior his wisdom and knowledge is and how superior his ways and plans and purposes are to ours. And we can't help but just fall on our knees in the midst of all the questions that are still not totally and fully, completely resolved and answered. We, we realize that something much bigger is going on than our little pea brains can comprehend and wrap our minds around. And that's something that is going on that's bigger than our little pea brains can wrap our minds around is coming from someone who is much bigger and mightier and holy and greater than anything and anyone that we've ever seen in our lives. And we fall down and we just worship. Pray that in the midst of all this talk of election and hardening and all the confusion and questions that it might bring, I pray the, the ultimate effect it would have on our lives is, is that. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God that we don't fully comprehend. Because if we did, you wouldn't be a God worthy of our worship. If we had you figured out, if we could dot every T and cross, or dot every I and cross every T, when it came to your ways and your character, what you're like and why you do what you do and who you are, and if we just had you pegged and all figured out and could explain everything in perfect detail to satisfy every question that has ever been asked about you, you wouldn't be a God worthy of our worship. Instead, you'd be just like us. We don't want a God just like us. We want a God that is sovereign, that is holy, that is majestic, and that works and moves in ways that our little minds cannot comprehend. And so God, our, yes, let us pursue you and knowing you truly. Let us not just throw our hands up in the air and say it's impossible to know you. And so let's not even try, but let us pursue you to know you truly so we can worship you fully. And I pray that for my heart, and I pray for that for every life and heart that is here. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things.